So nice to be with you all and uh, share some time together. Um, I don't know if it's Mike or somebody sent me a list of 13 questions to go over, so we'll see what we have time for. I'll, we'll speak for about 45 minutes or so. And uh, someone mentioned my Vanderbilt hat. When I came to town, a member of the congregation uh, put an Alabama hat on my desk. So, so like, wow, free hat, you know? Hats get sweaty and they get schmutzy down here. I'll take the free hat. And I put it on and he really he was very happy. And then a few weeks later, somebody else put a Vanderbilt hat on my desk. So that's the hat. Yeah. We actually have a great relationship with this church, um, with Pastor Patrick and Leslie. And it really, we don't take it for granted to be able to have real friends who we can be honest with and trust. And um, just want to, tell you in case you didn't know uh, hopefully you won't fire the team over there but um, there were some bomb scares I guess last year in a lot of Jewish institutions if you grew up Jewish it just it always happens I mean like third grade the third grade bomb scare when we had to leave Hebrew Academy went to the back football field and played the did Israeli dancing I mean it's something you live with if you're Jewish but uh, I got an email from from this church saying hey if you ever need a place to go Here's the church, here's the key, here's the code. And that was extremely special for us. And it made us feel really um, comfortable and loved. So um, it's great to be here. There are, I have some questions that people asked, and if you want to add any other questions, we can. And I can speak faster, slower, whatever you want. <laughs> I, I was surprised this was the first question, but tell us about your background. Where were you born, and where did you grow up? So I grew up, uh, my family grew up in Schenectady, New York, in upstate. My grandparents were from Troy, New York, and my other grandparents were from Buffalo. So Schenectady was a small town. It used to be a bustling city. General Electric is in Schenectady. Uh, there's a chemical company in Schenectady. There's Union College in Schenectady. And uh, they made locomotives. Remember the locomotive at Centennial Park? That was made in Schenectady. And that's all. There's nothing else there. <laughs> It's, it's, it's grown quiet over the past, you know, 20 years. And uh, even the synagogue I grew up in is just a mere relic of what it used to be. My parents are still there. They want to keep things going as long as they can for the people around. Um, so the background, I grew up in a traditional Jewish family. We went to day school, Jewish day school growing up. We all went to public high school because in upstate New York, there was no Jewish high school. And then I'm one of five siblings, and each of the siblings took a different path in life. but. We still stick together. I was telling Leslie that in a week, we're gonna take our kids to Israel. And I have two siblings that, that moved to Israel. One, my sister moved right after high school. She graduated early and made Aliyah, as they say. My brother moved a few years ago and they, they learned, they're living the dream over there. So that's where you were born and where you grew up. What factors influenced you to decide to becoming a rabbi? It wasn't the pay, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I grew up in a small community where the rabbi was really relevant to, to a lot of life, where the rabbi had this vicarious experience through all kinds of stages in life, beginning, middle, end, ups, downs. And, uh, and I grew up loving synagogue life, loving the traditions and loving connecting to people. And I would always find myself walking to synagogue early and just hanging out with the older folks. Now, who does that when you're 15 years old? And I always had the key to the synagogue, and, and I just loved the, the whole piece of Jewish life. And so this felt like a good thing. 
And also, I was taught at a very young age to serve the community is the highest calling. So it's very fulfilling. It's a very fulfilling life. It's a very busy life. Um, you never know what's going to happen next, <laughs> but it's extremely fulfilling. I wouldn't want to do anything else. Education and training to become a rabbi. Do you have a favorite passage of scripture or Shabbat story? Okay, so training is, you know, post-college, you do um, some time in the yeshiva. Yeshiva is traditional rabbinic texts in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then after you're good with the texts, then you'll go to rabbinical school, ordination. Ordination used to be 12 years. In Europe, you couldn't be a rabbi in your 20s or early 30s. In Europe, you were a rabbi when you were in your 40s. You put in a lot of years. And then in the early 1900s, as uh, Jews emigrated to the US in mass, they needed more rabbis. So they dumbed it down, they made it shorter, and said, okay, you, if you already have a yeshiva background, then you can learn what you need to learn in four years, and you can go out and be a rabbi. So uh, I was in a, a rabbinical school that was brand new when I attended. It's orthodox. We can talk about that in a few minutes if you like. But it was also more modern and open, and it really wanted to inspire the rabbis to leave New York and leave the major Jewish centers and to make a difference in the world. So um, that's, that was becoming a rabbi. And I, I graduated in 2005 and came here to Nashville with my wife, thinking we'd stay for a year or two. And then, you know, it's a little past 2005, and it's gone pretty well. Favorite passage or scripture of Shabbat story? I like the last psalm, Psalm 150, because it has praising God with, uh, you know, the timber and the harp and all the different instruments. And the very last line is just all the spirits praising God. So it's like the band stops playing, but you can still hear the voices. And the voices, the spirit of the people is what matters most. So um, we're an Orthodox synagogue. We don't use instruments on Shabbat. Um, I love instruments. I'm a musician myself. Um, and we have music during the week, but on Shabbat you hear the voices, and it's, it's what people bring to them, to the, when they show up, it's what they bring that counts, so I love that. It's also kol hanashem, I mean, it's all, all the soul, I mean, you have to praise God with all your soul, but it also means all the souls of the world will come and praise God, so I like that. Okay, uh, tell us about your congregation, joys, challenges, and sorrows as a rabbi. Okay, so there were three immigrant communities that came to Nashville in the late 1800s. There were the Russians, the Polish, and the Hungarians. The Russians were wealthy. They were the first quickest to assimilate, and they evolved into the Reformed Temple. The Reformed Temple in Harding has been around since the Civil War. They have Civil War graves. They had a beautiful building downtown, and then they moved up to uh, Belmead many, many years ago. The Polish um, were on Gay Street, and the Polish immigrants evolved into a conservative synagogue, and they are down the street from us, called West End Synagogue. And we were the poor Hungarians. The Hungarians were the, were the poorest and slowest to uh, assimilate, and we evolved into the Orthodox synagogue. And our building was right next to the Ryman Auditorium, and the buildings looked very similar. And so there were stories of people going into a, the old share of Israel, thinking they're in the Ryman. <laughs> what time does the show start, you know? showing up at the popcorn and beer, and it's a fast day. <laughs> so we still have pictures of the building, and uh, we have a few of the old-timers who grew up going to that building, going to synagogue there, and how, how different Jewish life was back then. So, so the Ryman is the mother synagogue. <laughs> Next to the Ryman is the mother, the mother synagogue. Sherith means remnant, remnant of Israel, Sherith Israel. And Marshall Donnelly, if anybody knows Marshall Donnelly Combs, if you know him, they call, they call Sheriff of Israel, Sheriff. So, different names. 
So today the synagogue is much younger than it used to be. Uh, when I came, there was a lot of white hair, and now there's a lot of other colors, let's just say. I actually like the white-haired people the most because they're the most interesting to talk to. Uh, young, young families are very important for a future, but young parents, you can't talk to them. They're just all about their kids. I'm one of them. You can't have a conversation with a young parent. They're always running here, running there, worried about something. And the empty nesters and beyond, they have time, they have attention, they have experience, and so I always value um, those people in our, in our congregation as much, if not more, than the young families. Young families will take what they need, and they, 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 they give a lot, but they also take a lot, and I love them. And if you go to our synagogue on a typical Shabbat Saturday, you may see 80, 90, 100 adults, but you also see 30 or 40 kids. And it's um, a long service, longer than a typical Protestant service, let's just say. The full service is two and a half hours. Um, a lot of people come late. There's actually a break in the middle of the service for some people that go out for a little schnapps, a little drink, before my sermon. My favorite joke is that once I went out for schnapps before my sermon, and I enjoyed my sermon a lot more than that Shabbat too. <laughs> so it's a long service because we warm up with psalms, there's blessings, then we read the Torah portion. The, the, the books of Moses are divided into 54 portions, and there's about a 25-minute read each week. It's the same reading everywhere in the world. Every synagogue read the same reading. This week we begin the book of Numbers. And, um, and then we have prophetic reading, and then we have a sermon, and then we have a Musa, the additional service, so it lasts a long time. And afterwards, we all stay for food and eat lunch, so it's really, really nice. Um, okay, we're about halfway through the questions. Any, any comments so far? Any other, uh, like, yes? Would outsiders be welcome? Yeah, for sure. Outsiders are always welcome. We warn people that most everything is in Hebrew, but it's just authentic, orthodox. It's, yeah, people are... We're old school, we're old fashioned, so women and men are segregated, they sit separately. There's a women's community and a men's community, and the prayer book is in Hebrew, but it's also translated in English. But yeah, we, we have, every week there are visitors from either different faiths or different groups and tourists and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So the children sit with the mothers? The children run around. I mean, it's really annoying, but they run around. <laughs> they, we, want, we want synagogue to be a home, not a house. Not a house of God, but a home of God. So at certain points, they're programming down, downstairs. It's not, they're not running around the whole time. But they have free reign. If you're a kid, you can go wherever you want. Sit with mom, sit with dad, be in the middle, you know, stand on a bench, whatever it is. They have free reign. And that's by design. Yeah. Is there a question in the back? Yeah. Oh, sure, okay. So let's say pre-enlightenment Europe, 1600s, 1700s, not a good time to be a Jew. And Jews lived in ghettos. They lived in the hood, right? They couldn't leave the ghetto. If you left the ghetto, you could be killed, you know. Jews couldn't own land. Jews couldn't have the same jobs. Jews were forced to be certain jobs, like the whole money business about being money lo loaners, that, that was, you know, Jews are forced to have certain jobs. And what that did is it kept the religion sort of intact. Like everybody in the community was sort of forced to believe a certain way and act a certain way. And when, uh, when emancipation occurred, and actually the first city to emancipate Jews was Venice, Italy. You can actually still go to the Jewish ghetto in Venice. But when Venice emancipated the Jews, that sparked enlightenment. Enlightenment was Jews who were ghetto Jews opening their eyes to the world for the first time in hundreds of years, saying, wow, the world is amazing. 
the world has really progressed in the last few centuries. So the Jews began to affect the world in big ways in arts and science and so on, in literature, and the world began to affect Jews. And that sparked reform. From the 1800s, the reform movement, think Germany, reformed Jews wanted their rabbi to speak in the language of the streets that people could understand. They wanted the beautiful stained glass windows that churches had. They wanted to renew the religion, and that was reform. And then orthodoxy is a response to reform. Orthodoxy is nothing new is good. We don't want to change anything. No more progress. That's my branch. Um, obviously, there's different representations of orthodoxy. So we follow the law of, a, of the codex from, from the 1600s written by Joseph Caro. And that has its own history, but that is holding steadfast. You know, anybody who comes to Nashville from New York, like a Hasidic Jew or a uh, Jew with, Jews with side locks, long beard, they'll pray in my synagogue when they come because they know the prayers are going to be a certain way. There'll be separation of, of genders and so on and so forth. We have two reform temples in Nashville, the temple in Belmede, and we have in Brentwood, we have Congregation Micah. And the, the third movement was uh, is the conservative movement, which is not politically conservative. In fact, they're pretty liberal um, politically, and they want to conserve tradition, but at the same time, moving the religion forward, moving Judaism forward. The last thing I have to say is orthodoxy is not a movement. We're, the most, we're just disorganized. Reform is actually a movement. They have rules. They have a CCAR. They have a board. Orthodoxy is just loosely tied affiliates of, of Jews who try to hold steadfast to the laws of the Codex from the 15, 1500s. Yeah? This is uh, something I think I mentioned to the class uh, a few weeks ago. I'd like to get what, hear what you have to say. A few years ago, Lakemore United Methodist Church, your synagogue and West End, had a series of, I think it was dinner time, uh, and I'll, I'll just say anti-Semitism through the ages. Uh, and a, the, the gentleman whose name I don't recall, I think he's married to A.J. But, uh, but in any event, he, he taught that you know, on three nights, and one of them was at your place, and on the walls were numbers uh, inside of picture frames. And as I remember, it's like classics, maybe, I don't know, graduating classics. Anyway, 5,742 or something like that. And I remember going, I was standing in line. I was going to get my food, and there were some people standing nearby that looked to me like they probably were members there. And I asked them what that was, and I'm not sure I got much of an answer. But three or four weeks ago, when I raised it in this class at R3, it was told to me it means years of the promise, which I'm guessing dates from whenever God promised Abraham what he did and Abraham's age on that day. Is yeah, that right? very, very close. So we have a Hebrew year, and we call it the year from creation, although we know the year is the, the world is more than 6,000 years old. But we have a Hebrew, we follow the lunar calendar, so there's Hebrew days and Hebrew months, and we follow the Hebrew years. So. If you follow like the biblical story, so the world would have been year zero, and now we're at 5782 or whatever it is. So a lot of Jews will follow that. that, that that's the date they'll give you of a year something happened. So it's from the beginning. From the beginning. 
right from the beginning. Abraham is actually, ironically, the year 1948, which is the year in our 1948, like yeah. AD or AC is the is state of Israel. And Abraham is 1948, the original counting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, well, I can um, look at some more of the questions. Yeah. A certain length, well actually when I first came to town I was 26 and I was fighting a court case in one of the counties, surrounding counties. We had filed an injunction for somebody who's supposed to be cremated. Um, somebody's supposed to be cremated in Jewish law, you're not supposed to be cremated even though most Jews are cremated. And um, the family asked me to do what I could. So I went to this judge and the judge said, you can't be a rabbi, you don't have a beard. <laughs> but, but we won. Jewish understanding of God, Jewish understanding of afterlife. So, um, I'll tell you a funny line. There's no strict Jewish beliefs. There's, we have commandments and we have history, but it's hard to say what a Jew is supposed to believe, but the way I, the way I heard it recently was Jews believe in no more than one God. Why do I put it that way? Because even some Jews struggle with what is God, what is their faith in God. We believe in one God, there's God, all-encompassing is God, a spirit in the sky. We're not really sure. And not that we don't really care, but that's not really the, always the focus on how our faith work. But one God, and Maimonides, the famous philosopher, said we define God not, what, not by what God is, what God is not. Defining God in the negative. So even though there's anthropomorphisms throughout the Bible, we, we speak about the strength of God's arm and hands and so on and so forth, the outstretched arm. We're not going to define God by that way. We'll define God by, by not being that way, if that makes sense. Afterlife is also a tricky one, but we do believe in the eternality of the soul. That when, And I say we, again, it's not like anybody has to believe anything. It's not like in Hebrew school they tell you you have to believe this. That's not what it's like. But the idea is that the spirit, the soul is eternal. If you ever meditate on yourself, you can almost understand that you have a body that's going to die one day and a spirit that will endure. And we believe in this afterlife where the souls just last forever and they up in heaven, whatever that means with our ancestors. There are scriptural hints at it uh, that we can get into if you like. Um, so yeah, that's the afterlife. Okay. Uh, what is our understanding of the Messiah? The Messiah also, we, we feel, is sort of written into Scripture later on. We see the word anointed, anointed one, referring to the high priest in, uh, in the five books of Moses. The Kohen HaMashiach is the anointed priest. So that word appears, but in terms of the figure of the Messiah, we don't see that explicitly necessarily in, in the, what, what Christians call the Old Testament. But we believe this figure will come known to the world, and introduce the end of days, and that, that figure will come when there's peace in the world. And so if you look at, I mentioned Maimonides, the philosopher, his 13 attributes of belief, his 13 articles of faith are printed in most Jewish prayer books, and one of the prayer books, one of the faith, articles of faith says, I believe in the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah will come. So we do believe the Messiah will come. We don't talk about it a lot, although, um, when Jews were marching to the death chambers in Auschwitz in, in the camps, the two things they said were 
Shema, hear Israel, Lord is God, Lord is one, and I believe in the coming of the Messiah. So that also almost comes into the discussion about hell. Uh, we don't believe in hell. We believe that uh, if a person is good, their soul ascends to heaven. And if they're not good, then their soul does not ascend to heaven. And my parallel is when I was a kid, I used to practice piano. And my mom would often have me practice more than I wanted to practice. And um, the deal was if I practiced for half an hour, I'd get a prize. It didn't mean that if I didn't practice, I'd get a, a slapping, I wasn't punished. And that's sort of the idea that God is our Father in heaven. So our Father in heaven would never punish us to hell, but our Father in heaven would reward us for a life that's lived well. So that's the heaven and hell. So, but, but the idea of hell does appear throughout the Talmud. And what we do with hell is we use the idea, the concept of hell, to discuss our life values. Anytime hell is brought up, it helps us better understand what life is about and what our priorities should be. Okay. Our sacrificial practices in your worship service today. Anybody want to guess do we do sacrifices today? We don't, I mean, we don't sacrifice animals anymore. We never sacrificed children before. But what we do is, after the, understand that the Judaism today is rabbinic Judaism, right? During Jesus' time, there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of what is the future of biblical Judaism. So we're followers of the rabbis, and the rabbis said, you won't have the sacrifices anymore. You're, you won't have to worship at the temple, you're gonna have worship at the heart. And so we sacrifice our time and our heart, and that's, that's a different kind of sacrifice. Okay, we're up to number 10. What are some of the things you practice or avoid on Sabbath and Shabbat? Shabbat, okay. Yeah, Shabbat's really the biggest Jewish observance. It's the, most, it's the best. Shabbat starts 18 minutes before sunset on Friday evening when the women of the home light the candles. And from the next 25 hours, there's no work to be done, no creative work to be done, no cooking, no turning on lights, no writing, no riding in the car, no commerce, no planting, no reaping, no sowing, no technology. And so often we focus on what we don't do. Sometimes what we don't do helps us understand what we do do. We hold back from things to create sanctity. So what that means is you have to prepare for Shabbat. You gotta prepare your food, you gotta make your phone calls, you gotta get rid of your phone. Um, this is probably the single most inhibitor to a life well lived these days. And um, watching from family members who just are like this all day long and not in the world. So in Shabbat, you, uh, you're in the world, for real. Nobody's gonna get a text, nobody's gonna get a call. We have uh, our families meet at Ellington Park at 4 p.m. on Saturday afternoons, and you see parents and kids without phones. And someone commented, not from our community, wow, when was the last time you saw parents and kids really interacting at that, at that level? It's really a day of presence. It's a day when we're not rushing anywhere, when we're appreciating God's glory in the world. So Shabbat is really the biggest. So it's what we try to avoid and what we try to do. We try to connect, we try to study, rest, play, visit, all those important things we sing, but we don't, uh, we don't use these things. And, um, and we're, we're not doing any creative work. The follow-up question is like, well, are we sitting in the dark all of Shabbat? And the answer is, well, you, we could turn lights on before Shabbat, and you can have timers, but we just don't, we're not gonna be turning lights on and off, because what's the first thing God creates in Genesis? Let there be light, so we don't turn lights on or off. It's a way to make it this day feel, feel different. 
as well. Tell us about bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. Okay, ready? Which one is for the boys? How do you know that? That's really okay. Fine. Okay. <laughs> bar is is boys, bat, and uh, historically there was no bat mitzvah. But again, in the 1900s, like women women count too, and if you're going to educate them, then you also have to honor them them becoming you know daughters of the commandments. Bar mitzvah is when a boy turns 13; it's coming of age, and coming of age for women is 12. Women would mature faster, you know, both in physically but also mentally, intellectually. So, so this is an interesting comparison. So our, like I said, orthodoxy is more old school, and we're, we are going to tend to be less politically correct in, a, in the way to honor our tradition. So we're not egalitarian, but in the more liberal branches, they are fully egalitarian. So bar and bat mitzvah are always exactly the same, 13. If you've got to do it for one gender, you've got to be for the other gender, 13, 13. And we're, we'll be at 12 for the girls and 13 for the boys. And they'll do part of, they'll be part of the service and share some words that they've been studying and they've been thinking about and we'll have a party and so on and so forth. Uh, we're not a cookie cutter community, so every bar about mitzvah is different, depending on the best way to challenge um, the child in their growth. Okay, bar about mitzvah. Were any of your family members victims in the Holocaust? We're lucky because all of our family from both sides were Budapest and Romania and a different part of Russia that I forget. We came before, we came in the early 1900s before World War I. So we, no family in the Holocaust. But growing up, there were plenty of survivors. There were all my teachers and day school survivors. And um, in Nashville, there aren't many survivors left. But uh, it's amazing how much the Holocaust plays a role in Jewish life and the Jewish psyche and, um, and the trauma. Because it, doesn't, it wasn't only the survivors, but the children of survivors. And some so sociologists have written that the children of survivors should also be called survivors because they survived the hells in the parents' home. So, yeah, so would you mind sharing with us how that event has affected you and your feelings about God and the role of the Jewish people in the world? Who, was that your question? That's a tough one. I mean, for a lot of Jews, how can you believe in a God that would allow that to happen? So if a Jew says, I don't believe in God because of the Holocaust, like, who can blame him? I don't, I don't blame you. There are survivors that got stronger through the Holocaust and survivors that could no longer believe. And there are survivors that evolved. Their Jewish journey went from the day they were born to the day they died, and sometimes they believed and sometimes they didn't believe. Um, Irving Greenberg, his Hebrew name is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, writes the Holocaust was the breaking of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. A very provocative theological piece. And... Um, he got in a lot of trouble for it, but if you want to Google it, it's compelling. What, what kind of covenant could there be if God would let this happen to the Jewish people? And we still haven't made up for the Holocaust, our numbers. Our numbers haven't made up. I think we're like 16 million and there were 18 and a half million before the Holocaust. My sister in Israel has eight kids, so she's trying hard. <laughs> she's 46 with five grandkids. So they'll help. You gotta have kids. You gotta support kids, whatever it is, yeah. She lives in like a kibbutz. She lives in a moshav. Moshav is a settlement project in the south. And all the families are quite big there. Yeah. And along the same lines with your family, do you know what, what we would call tribe you are from? Oh, gr great question. What tribe? That's a, that's a huge question. The tribes we know are, for example, in our community, we know who the Kohanim are, the priests and the Levites. 
So we know that priests derive from Levite as well. So we know who the Levites are. If anybody had Herman Kaplan as a doctor at Vanderbilt, don't, you don't have to say who your physician was. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a priest, so he goes back to Aaron. Um, everyone else is called the Israel, most likely from the tribe of Judah. Now there is this phenomenon of the return of the lost tribes. And for example, there's a huge community of Jews in India, and they're thought to be from the tribe of Menashe. But that's about all we know. One day they'll do genetics and figure it all out, but we're not there yet. Yeah? You're talking about after death. If a Jewish person dies, must they be buried before sometime? So that was the original, that's the biblical idea. Um, in communities around the world, they, they try to, but we don't do evening burials in, uh, in the States, and it's a huge country. So, but in Israel, if somebody dies at 2 p.m., they'll be buried that night. Outside of Israel, they'll wait a day or two. But try not to wait too long. Uh, my brother is a funeral director in New York, and sometimes he'll, he'll ship bodies to Israel. People want to be buried in Israel, so obviously they won't be buried within a 24 hours. But you try to do as quickly as possible out of respect to the, to the deceased. And you might have a memorial service some days later. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. Yeah, exactly right. So there's a rabbi who died in Memphis about a month ago. So he's buried in Israel, but they had a memorial service in Memphis for for him. Yeah. Our, our, anybody been to been past our cemetery before in DB Todd? On DB Todd North Nashville, there's a Temple Cemetery, and then there's a West End and Sheriff Israel Cemetery. So, yeah. Yeah. Is, is there a uh, general consensus among the Jewish people about the abortion issue? Abortion, abortion issue. The Jewish people have a consensus about nothing. There's no consensus in the Jewish people about anything. <laughs> Far from it. We're good at arguing. Um, no, but I could tell you some ideas, some Jewish ideas. Most Jews in America are more liberal to begin with. 70% vote liberal, 30% don't. Um, I'm not going to divulge how I vote. Because that doesn't really, who cares how I vote anyways? But um, I'll give you a couple scriptural ideas. Um, one idea is that the big biblical source that everyone uses for abortion is two men get into a fight and accidentally hit a woman who, um, who is pregnant and miscarries. And so the source for the rabbis to say that it's not murder but killing, it's not murder, is because the punishment is a civil punishment. He's able to pay money and be done with his crime. So if it was murder, if it was a capital offense, then you couldn't just pay money. The Torah wouldn't let you pay money. You'd have to have a, a, a capital punishment. So for most Jews, you know, the, the problem we have in America is that we have these terrible categories we put people in, that either they're pro-life or they're pro-choice, whereas all Americans are really pro-life. We all support life, and we all, we all support choice. But the the categories have been co-opted by the extremes and we can't really focus. The real question is when does life begin and when does life end? That's it. In our, in our country, we've fought about when life has ended before. We've had discussions and fights about euthanasia and there's Arizona on one extreme and there's Texas on another extreme. And the abortion debate is simply when, when does life begin? That's really what it is. And so in the Mishnah, there is a discussion about when does life begin? Is it when, you know, you, you basically have the have a, have a variety of opinions that are presented. Was I obscure enough in my answer? <laughs> yeah. What, what about the, the fact that 
It's also a question. That's a question, right? When does the soul enter? And the reason that's a question is because animals also have conception and, and, and have, have heartbeats, and is that they don't have a soul, so we don't know. I mean, there's there's a range of opinions. The one thing the Jews want to be emphatic about is that abortion can't be prohibited across the, across every single case, because the one case where the mother's life and this doesn't happen very much, but if the mother's life is threatened by the baby or the fetus, whatever you want to call it, then abortion is mandated. I think the Catholics may have that similar provision. And so nowadays, like for example in Israel, where there's rabbis on the boards of all the hospitals, um, you know, abortion is certainly not encouraged, but it's allowed in certain cases, and it's not a national issue. It's dealt with in a, in a quieter way. It's not, you know, we have a way of America of making a stink out of everything, and it just ruins any intellectual discussion or anything. But in Israel, they, it's, not a, it's not a fight. It's religiously inspired, and, and they do what they need to do, and they figure it out. And the, the abortion rate is very low. Yeah. I wish we used her more. She's, while she was at Vanderbilt, she was all over the place. I would email her and she, greetings from Sweden, greetings from wherever she is. <laughs> greetings from the airport lounge. So um, she, it's interesting to me that she belongs to our synagogue because she's, she calls herself an unorthodox Orthodox Jew. Like she's not, doesn't keep kosher, doesn't keep Shabbat, but for some reason she feels that the orthodox articulation has an authenticity, authenticity that matches what she thinks it's supposed to be. I don't really know. We, we ask her to speak every so often. We, you know, she feels like she's a little bit overused, but she'll speak on how Jews and Christians will read passages differently in the Old Testament. She'll educate us on Christianity because we, we also want to know. And um, yeah, and, and she's retired right now. She t retired from divinity school. She's on the, she's does like a, something at another university in the Northeast, and hopefully when she's back, she'll help us out. Yeah. Second question. Uh, the uh, video series that has really struck a chord in Christianity is The Chosen. Are you familiar with The Chosen? Have you seen it? What, what's your faith community's take on that? I've only like run through it on TV. What's that, what's that channel that it's on? Oh, then maybe there's a there's a show called The Chosen on the Christian radio, the Christian TV network. Maybe you're talking about something else. Uh, this is a uh, it's a, a two-season uh, video series published or directed by Dallas Jenkins. Um, it's uh, it, it's consistent with the, the gospel stories, you know, in, in, in the New Testament. But there's some literary license. There's some additional stories. I haven't really seen it, but uh, love to. Always looking for another good show. Yeah. Have you ever read the New Testament? Parts of it. Yeah, parts of it. Yeah. I I I get the draw. I mean, yeah. So my understanding is, and I can't remember. Uh, one is Hillel, and another is they're kind of. 
commentaries, and, and it seems like in New Testament literature, there's, uh, it's often brought up that the two schools of thought and different <coughs> angles on uh, what should be practiced, etc. <coughs> is that still a part of uh, modern-day uh, Jewish Oh, yeah. Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, in, in a, any rabbinical setting or any traditional Jewish setting, you know, we don't just read the Bible and, and think about what it means to us today. We read the Bible, and then we read the Midrash from the first few centuries, and then we look at the medieval posts, and we want to know how it's been interpreted by our people throughout the centuries. Hillel and Shammai were two schools of thought that weighed less on the meaning of the Torah and more on how law should be lived. Because the rabbinic, the rabbinic idea of Judaism was fulfillment of commandments. That's what it is. And they spent their three centuries debating how, what you're supposed to do. So Hillel was always more lenient, and Shana was always strict. There were a few examples, but the Talmud is very quick to point out that as different as they were in their philosophies, their kids married each other. They're still part of the same community. Yeah. In the Chosen series that Fred was referring to, uh, there is a lot of uh, historical perspective on Judaism because the, the disciples were all practicing Jews. And yep. it was just kind of interesting how the, those who were of the, the, uh, the, the Jews who were concerned about this man, Jesus, and the influence that he was having among their people, and they were kind of going nose to nose, uh, even as Jews, about how much to accept. And then one of the, the uh, uh, rabbis, uh, Nicodemus, uh, was uh, kind of helping provide some mature guidance. It was just really fascinating. Nice. I think it's, that series has brought up so many questions that we have for years. I think that, I think that process continues to this, this day. I mean, I think the idea is that Jesus saw a bigger picture and that the rabbis didn't. They were so, um, they were so insistent on the details and that didn't win for a lot of people. Um, and for us, the beauty is in the details. And it's not always in the bigger picture. So, you know, that's, that's how the world shook out. But there is an idea if, you know, and this takes a little bit of license to say that if the idea was to bring God to the world, and you look at Judaism and Christianity and Islam, they all sort of did that in their own way. Yeah. It is a day rest because I'm not answering emails or texts. I'm not driving my car. And even before I was a rabbi, I went to shul for fun and I taught. So for the non-Orthodox rabbis, it's a day of work because they're writing their sermon up to the last minute. They're getting in a car. They're on the phone. It's a day of work. It's a production. And for me, it's a day of rest. I show up and I, I give a sermon, but the sermon's already prepared. And unlike this... Unlike the pastor here who can give a sermon in his head, I, my sermon's written down so I can turn my brain off. I don't, I don't need my brain. <laughs> uh, so. He had some practice last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned a couple times that uh, there's no consensus, that there's a lot of freedom of thought and respect for differences. But yet, uh, there does seem to be a consensus of what is to be practiced on Shabbat and, and how to fulfill that. So it seems like there's some consistency in certain things, but maybe it's the theological end that there's just a lot of openness because who can really 
know and understand God as he is. We're all trying to make sense with limited understanding, if you will. Uh, but you do come to some kind of consensus for practices on Shabbat. Sort of. I mean, I have, I have 2,000 pages of arguments about Shabbat, even in the Orthodox community. So there's, there's the nitty-gritty. Like, if somebody brings you flowers in Shabbat, are you allowed to, are you allowed to um, put water in a vase with them? Or is that, are they already dead? Are they not dead? Is it, is it considered planting? Uh, the non-Orthodox Jews don't keep Shabbat in the traditional way I, descri I described, obviously. So there's Orthodoxy, there's non-Orthodoxy. But yeah, there's a lot. I will say that for me, the consensus is a word that may not be familiar, but it's an English word called peoplehood. And that word was coined by Natan Sharansky, who was one of the big refuseniks who got out of the Soviet Union. And he became the director of the Jewish agency. And, uh, you know, he met Reagan and all that stuff, like, you know, those days. And when he realized what the world Jewry was doing to get the, the refuseniks out of the Soviet Union, and, you know, the million people that would, um, the million people that got together in Washington to set that big protest. Um, he coined the term peoplehood and said the most compelling part of being a Jew is being part of a people. And that's something that, that no one else understands. Uh, you know, we have friends from other faiths or other minorities. It's, it's not the same. If you're part of the people, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter, you know, racially where you're from. You, you could be Japanese. You could be Ethiopian. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. And it's like the biggest couch surfing club in the world. You know, I, I get emails from people visiting from who knows where, where's the Jewish community? I need, I need a place to eat. I want to connect with my people. And so for me, that's the most compelling part. I don't care what they believe. I don't care if they keep kosher. I care if we have sh common ancestors because it means they're part of the same people. So for Natan Sharansky, and I agree with him, that's, for me, that's the most compelling part. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you, you know, what you believe. It doesn't matter. Just be a nice person, but... We're the same people. There's certain commonalities that you have. We had um, some Green Berets were training with members of the IDF, Israel Defense Force, a couple years ago, and they needed a place for Shabbat. Some of them kept Shabbat, they came to our house. And within five minutes, we had connections and they're part of the family. And that's just peoplehood. Uh, they are your family. We had a, a doctor rabbi from, um, who, who walked from Ethiopia to Israel. And um, he came to Nashville to share his story. He looks differently than I do. He speaks different languages than I do. He has different training than I do. But we're brothers. It's, we're just family. So if, if there was a departing message, uh, is it 12.45 yet? Okay, that's the, <laughs> that's the message. Thank you so much, thanks for your time. Rabbi Saul, thank you for your time.